So it's Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. But I I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open me for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be, be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So our second reading for tonight is from Hebrews chapter 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, 
to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God as a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for, what would be, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our, living, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every, everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Uh, hi, as uh, Josh said, my name's Nick, uh, and can I add my uh, warm welcome to his, if this is your uh, first or second or third time. Uh, we hope it's not your last. Uh, it's great to have you here with us. Uh, why don't we pray again? Almighty God, what we have not, grant us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised. Amen. Uh, have you ever felt like an outsider? Uh, think of the Western Derby over at Optus. You're in blue and gold, and all around you is just purple. You're an outsider. Now, of course, uh, by the second quarter, West Coast is on top, and you feel a bit uh, better about yourself, but do you know what I mean? Uh, maybe the Dockers fans feel like that now that I've just sledged them. <laughs> Have you ever been an outsider? What about an outsider as a Christian? <coughs> Two years ago, I had an experience at one of my classes. Uh, about 25% of us were Christians, uh, which is pretty unheard of in Perth. But even then, uh, I felt like an outsider. I felt like I didn't quite belong uh, in that class, in that, in that space. And the church in this letter to the Hebrews, which we've been studying for two or three years now, I suppose, uh, they knew what it was like to be an outsider. Uh, come back with me to chapter 10. A couple of pages over, chapter 10. We're going to stay in Hebrews for tonight. Uh, the psalm gets picked up, but we're not going to look at that. But come with me to chapter 10. and verse 32, we'll start in the middle of that verse. You endured in a great conflict of suffering. And verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Verse 34, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. And verse 36, you need to persevere. 
for who knows how long, this church was doing it tough. They were excluded, persecuted, suffering. And having survived all that, they just want to get away. They want to rest, some R&R. Back in chapter 2, the writer says that he fears they're drifting away. In chapter 5, they're accused of no longer even trying. They've done some hard yards and now they just want to sit on the bench. And yet, in our chapter tonight, as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, as the writer makes his final remarks, he says, come be outsiders again. In fact, he says, come and be disgraced. So I wonder how you guys feel as Christians being outsiders. Do you cope well with that? Are you willing to bear disgrace? Are you confident? Are you able to persevere? Or do you feel like taking a rest? Uh, Last week with Jeff, we looked at uh, three attitudes as we run the race. We looked at focus and discipline and tenacity. Uh, This week, we're going to look at three encouragement as we live as outsiders in this world. We're going to look at the life of our leaders. We're going to look at the grace of our God and of the city that is to come. The life of our leaders, the grace of our God, the city that is to come. So point one, the life of our leaders. Uh, This chapter says two things about leaders. We find the first there in verse 7. I'll read it out. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. But this church, battered and bruised, they just want to fit in. Uh, They're not sure they can do it any other way. They don't know how. But the writer says, well, think of your leaders. He says, remember, consider, imitate. They've been there before. Um, At the moment, I'm raising a puppy and we're doing uh, training together. Uh, And the breeder told me that she'll do whatever she sees our other dog doing. And you're all thinking, great, Nick's other dog's really well behaved, so now he'll have two well-trained dogs. Uh, That's not true. Uh, She's biting me and scratching me and doing all sorts of awful things. But there's something about imitating others that just works, for good or for bad. And this passage says, look at the outcomes of your leaders and remember, consider and imitate them. For a church that is resistant to being outsiders, lots of merit in seeing how their leaders work, to seeing how they've bared under the same kind of awful treatment, to see how their godly faithfulness shine through. And if these leaders can do it, then so can the Hebrews. Their king, it's the same as your king, the author says. And their faith, it's the same as yours. And their hope in heaven, it's the same. It's there in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It feels like a bit of an isolated sentence, but that's the guarantee in this passage. The outcome of your way of life, he says, is going to be exactly the same if you follow them, because Jesus has not changed. And he won't. And that's good news. So it begs the question, who do we know whose life is worth remembering and considering and imitating. We could ask, who's the poster on our wall? Who's the poster on your wall? Um, 
a few years ago, Lindsay and I spent some time in Europe traveling around uh, looking at the big sites of the Protestant Reformation, a big event in church history, and we saw all the big ones. We saw John Calvin's Bible, we saw Martin Luther's chair, we saw, saw John Wesley's house. And I would love to say it changed me. I would love to, because it cost a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> but for the better part, it didn't. Uh, but we were there during Christmas, and we were in a small town, and we went with our friends, uh, singing with his kids, Christmas carols to their neighbours, sharing the gospel message with them. And seeing the way he led his family to do that, that changed me. For someone who's so resistant to wanting to share Jesus with my neighbours, it happened this afternoon, our neighbour was over and Dad said, I'm preaching. And I thought, I'm resistant. But seeing how someone else did that, that changed me. And here at Uni Church, the Spirit is at work in so many people, bringing fruit to bear. And as we look at that, we can remember, we can consider, and we can imitate. And that's especially true of our leaders. So that's the first thing. Uh, but the second thing about leaders we see in verse 17. The writer returns to the theme of leaders again. Verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders. And submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. It's pretty clear, isn't it? The leaders are working for their benefit. They're keeping watch over them. So they're not just for imitating, they're for listening. They're not just a pattern, they're preachers. And so for a struggling church, a watchful, caring eye is exactly what they need. It's no accident that down in verse 20, uh, it describes Jesus as the shepherd of the sheep. They need guidance and wisdom and help. They need confidence in their leaders who are working for their benefit. Um, For the last two years, I've been struggling to read Moby Dick, Um, I haven't got very far, but I got far enough to find this passage. This is how the protagonist Ishmael describes the pulpit of the church he visits before he sets out on a voyage uh, to catch the big white whale. Here's what he says. Nor was the pulpit itself without a trace of the same sea taste. Its panelled front was like the lightness of a ship's bluff bow, and the Holy Bible rested on a projecting piece of scrollwork fashioned after a ship's fiddle-headed beak, What more could be full of meaning? For the pulpit is ever this earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear. The pulpit leads the world. And from thence it is the God of breezes, fair or foul, is first invoked for favourable winds. Yes, the world is a ship on its passage out and not a voyage yet complete. And the pulpit is its prow. And of course, standing at the pulpit is a leader. And they're worth having, aren't they? Because the storm of the world lays before us. And our leaders, as they stand preaching, they bear the brunt of it. They see the problems we face and they put grace into our sails and they send us on our way. They're worth having confidence in. They're worth listening to and submitting to. And so for us, good or bad, breezes, fair or foul, our leaders are worth being confident in. 
That was point one, the life of our leaders. Uh, Point two, the grace of our God. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, uh, ceremonial food, altars, tabernacles, it's all a bit foreign to us, but we need to see that for the Jewish culture, this was the big thing. These are the things that mattered. And after a storm period of uh, suffering and persecution, uh, going back to their old ways in the Jewish world, that would have been comfortable. And the writer is saying, don't buy it. That teaching is strange. Don't get carried away. Because here in verse 10, we see the key. It says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Here we see it's not the Christians who are left out and are outsiders. In the economy of God, we are the insiders because the grace and the altar, which is Jesus on the cross, that's ours. It's everyone else that misses out. It's everyone else that's on the outside who doesn't have access. If only they would believe. And so those who've invested in that way of life, the tabernacle where the bulls and the goats are sacrificed, they can't share in the cross. There's two different aeroplanes and they're heading in two different directions and you can only have a seat on one and the seat where Jesus on the cross is our sacrifice, on our altar, that's the one that counts. And so in salvation, we're not outsiders. We're on the right track. Now, this whole letter to the Hebrews, it's been an attempt to demolish this system of sacrifices and temples and tabernacles. And whilst culturally, for them, it would have felt weird to step back from it, spiritually, it's the only thing that works. That's the point at the end of verse 9. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Uh, the most expensive steak I've ever had was 150 bucks. Uh, I didn't pay for it. Uh, it was pretty good. Um, it was wonderful, actually. But an hour later, uh, I was hungry again, and I'd forgotten all about it. And these ceremonial meals, they might have looked magnificent. They were pretty religious. There would have been a, myst- a mystical kind of transcendence about them as they shared in these sacrifices. Uh, but at the end of the day, they would go home, and nothing would have changed. Spiritually, it was insufficient. And this passage says it's strange teaching. Not necessarily strange as in obscure, although it is a bit for us. Strange as in it's strange to the gospel of grace. Because God's grace is real strength. It's the power of sin and death taken away by Jesus on his true altar, the cross, that gives real strength to the heart. Don't be carried away, the writer says. God's grace to you by the cross. Stick with that. You might feel like outsiders, and in a sense you are, but when it comes to salvation, you've got the right altar, the right sacrifice. Stick with grace. 
Now, uh, for us, 21st century Australia, I'm not sure many of us are missing out on uh, sacrifices, uh, but what is it we feel left out of? What does our culture value that Christians shouldn't? What do our friends do that we probably shouldn't partake in? As you're thinking of whatever that is for you, we're not the ones that miss out. We've already got what matters in the cross of Christ. But it might not be something bad. It could be something good. It could be sport or uni or work or whatever it is. And if you're thinking of that and how it consumes you, let's remind ourselves we should not be carried away because whilst not bad, those things are of no benefit to our hearts. We have grace. That's what we should stick with. Now, the whole letter of Hebrews has been painting this marvellous picture of Jesus as the all-sufficient, all-much-better sacrifice. And we need to remind ourselves that we're not missing it, that we've got access to that, the greatest thing in the world. As I said, it's taken us three years to get through this book, but if you're looking for a top-up on grace, uh, reading through Hebrews in an afternoon... Uh, it wouldn't be the worst thing you could do. So that's point two, the grace of God. Uh, point three, our final point, the city that is to come. And we'll start in verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burnt outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Uh, It seems that talk of altars and ceremonies gets the writer thinking about one more Old Testament thing, the sacrifice of atonement. Once a year, one priest could enter the most holy of places, but only by blood. And the most holy of places in the temple or in the tabernacle, that was where God was said to dwell. And so once a year, one man could enter the most holy of places with a sacrifice, and he could be in the presence of God. But the body of that sacrifice, of the blood that he was bringing in, that was burnt outside. Uh, It wasn't even in the city, it was outside of the camp, outside of the city, where people weren't, far, far away from that most holy place, as a symbol that the punishment for sin is not just blood, but exclusion, Exclusion not only from God's presence, but his people as well, the community, banished. It was a powerful ceremony. The reminder that the cost of inclusion was the exclusion of something else. And the writer says that ultimately it was the exclusion of Jesus. Because he suffered outside the camp. We know from the Gospels that Jesus died on a hill called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Uh, It wasn't anywhere near the most holy place where God dwelt. And there he was, scorned and shamed and excluded from the people as they mocked him. And we've been made holy, allowed in, at the cost not only of his blood, but his exclusion as well from God and God's people. And it's worth dwelling on that for a moment, isn't it? That our inclusion cost him exclusion. 
but uh, the author doesn't actually skip a beat. He jumps straight to the application there in verse 13. Let us then go outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Any given day down at Cottesloe Beach, you'd think Perth is heaven on earth, at least I think so, but Perth is no lasting city and neither was Jerusalem. And so as the people of God who've been given a future city, we're to look forward to the day when that comes. Back in chapter 12, don't flick there, but I'll read it out. It said, The city is described as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where thousands upon thousands of angels were sitting in joyful assembly. Uh, Later on in chapter 12, it describes the city as a city which cannot be shaken. We sang it in one of our hymns. And if that's the case, if that's our hope, And the passage says, go outside the camp and bear the disgrace of Christ. If we have a new city where we will be included, where we'll be insiders, then go outside the camp here and be excluded and be outsiders. Because our Saviour went there, but now he's there and we're going there. And so we'll be outsiders here, bearing the disgrace of this city and this world, but we wait for a city to come. Um, Well, as we come to a close, let's pull together some threads. And we're going to think about the perspective of this passage and we're going to think about the practice of this passage. So firstly, let's think about the perspective. And the question behind the perspective is, how are we actually going to live as outsiders? The challenge has been set by this chapter, but how are we going to do it? Well, the perspective of this passage, and really the whole book of Hebrews, is to look back, to look back at what Jesus has done as the better, always better sacrifice, sufficient for us, made at the cross. The true altar that which brings us grace, We're to look back to that, Because as we saw, that's what's going to strengthen us. But as we look back somehow with one eye, we need to look forward as well. Uh, Because this passage is asking us to take confidence in what is to come, that city that we look forward to. To live radically now as outsiders in this world because we'll be insiders in that. But I think if it was that easy, we wouldn't struggle, would we? If it was just as easy as turning back, thinking about grace, turning forward, thinking about the city, it wouldn't be too hard. Uh, But it is. It's a struggle. The Hebrew church found that. We don't have anywhere near as much trouble as them and we find it. That's where leaders come in, don't they? Uh, The capstones of that section on grace and the city is leaders in verse 7 and verse 17. Now, it could be that the author just forgot to say something in verse 7 and picked it back up in verse 17, but I don't think the Holy Spirit is that daft. The perspective of this passage is that Christian leadership is vital to the life of the church, to helping us look back, to helping us look forward, to encouraging us, to rebuking us, to showing us in word and deed what it looks like to look back, to look forward, to live as Christians in a world that's tough. Our leaders are vital. 
And so the perspective of this passage is that we need our leaders to point us to grace and to point us forward. And we need to take confidence in that and to follow them as they do it with us. So that's the perspective, but in practice, what will it all look like? Tomorrow at work, Christmas lunch with the family, next year as we kick back into gear, what is Hebrews 13 going to look like in practice? Well, in practice, there's two sacrifices we're to make in this passage. Either there in verse 14 and 15, we'll tackle verse 15 first. Our first sacrifice. Verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. As outsiders in this world, we are to profess the name of our Saviour openly and continually. Did you notice that? We profess his name. Think about what that will do for your conversations, your relationships to openly profess his name continually. It'll look like bearing disgrace, won't it? It'll look like being outsiders amongst your friends, your community, your clubs, your uni. But we'll be praising what God has done, won't we? His grace. And we'll be praising what he will do, the city that is to come. And the world might not want to hear it, but God does, and we want to tell him, because what he's done is so great. But of course, the last thing the Hebrew church wanted to do was just that. They'd been struggling. They wanted to go down quietly, to revert to their old ways, to just blend in with everyone else. But that's why this writer says, recall your grace, recall what's to come, and then you can do that. You can openly profess his name. In verse 4, it says that if they get this perspective right, that they're going to hold the line on marriage. They're going to stand for a different, radical, countercultural view on sex. In verse 5, they would talk about money and contentment in different terms and with far different outcomes. If they get the perspective, the things that they believe, the issues they stand for, it'll be different. It'll bring praise to God's name, but it will bring an outsider status to theirs. And if we understand this perspective, then we'll do the same. Go outside the camp and profess Jesus' name. So that was the first sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise. The second one is there in verse 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Easiest way not to be an outsider is to live like everyone else, to blend in, appear the same. But the sacrifices that God is pleased with is doing good and sharing with others. It'll mean loving each other as brothers and sisters beyond what's expected of an ordinary human being in Perth. It'll mean loving strangers even more beyond what's expected. It'll mean sharing our money, not hoarding it, giving it, not keeping it. If we get the perspective of this passage right, we'll do good to others in a way that makes us look like outsiders, makes us look different. But that's what pleases God, the God of grace who's bringing us home to his city. So two sacrifices if we've got the perspective right, the sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of doing good and sharing with others.
as we come to a close, uh, a few more things. If you're not a Christian here tonight, if church is new or these beliefs aren't your own, I hope you can see that Christianity is not about having an easy life. I hope you can see uh, that it's a life that most people wouldn't choose. It's tough. It means we're outsiders. But I hope you can see we're aware of that. In fact, we want that. Because we have hope in a city to come. We trust in the grace of Jesus on the cross who's rescued us. I hope you can see that. And if you are a Christian, how are you going to go? How willing are you to live as an outsider right now? Are you looking to your leaders? Are you submitting to them and having confidence in them? Are you looking back to the grace of cross, the grace of the cross? Is your hope in the city that is to come? Have you got that perspective? And how are you going putting it into practice? How often are you praising his name? How often are you practicing good for others? As this book comes to a close, it lays down a challenge to this church. For a church that's been battered and bruised, it lays down a challenge. For a church that doesn't want to be outsiders, it calls them to be outsiders. But there's a perspective here that we need to keep. And therefore, we'll practice pleasing God in this world as outsiders. Uh, Unless we despair how we're going to do that, I think the author's closing words in verse 20 are quite apt. Uh, It's a prayer, so why don't we pray that now? And may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.